Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, Episode 81. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Alistair Stewart. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned in to the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show to pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. And then we drop it on the slab, cut it open, and try and work out what that weird pink thing is and whether or not it should be in there at all. <laughs> to be more specific, we dive into it. We explore what works and what doesn't. We try to transform the raw idea into... Literary gold. <laughs> That's Fabulous. Thank you, sir. That, Alistair Stewart, uh, uh, my friend from across the great pond, uh, delighted to have you here by my side for this episode of the Roundtable Podcast. Thank you, as always, for making the time, man. Absolutely my pleasure, Dave. It's always a delight to be here. Well, and we had a good time on the 20 Minutes With of, of just seven days ago. Time flies in the potosphere. And and let's, let's continue the awesomeness uh, that we started back then, bringing our guest host back Back to the big chair. Dear friends, please welcome from a triumphant 20-ish minutes uh, from last week, author of Hunassier, because I like saying that name, and uh, Demoran, and the, the Mountain of Daggers, and the soon-to-be-released Sea of Quills, Seth Skorkowski. Seth, thank you, sir, for coming back, and, and I gotta tell you, I am seriously pumped at the prospect of workshopping a story with you, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back. Absolutely. I'm, this, this is going to be fabulous. Before we dive into that, I, I got to know, Seth, what you have done with, uh, uh, first of all, with the Vaudacan series, with, with having uh, Hunansier, I'm, I'm putting an extra N in there, it's, it's Hunansier. Hunassier. Uh With Hunassier and with Demor, with Hunassier not necessarily being a sequel, but rather picking up the narrative of a second character. Uh, clearly a part of a series, but not following the classic sequel format. And then with Mountain of Daggers and Sea of Quills, with this sort of episodic, uh, each story stands alone, but if you put them back to back, there's a, there's a narrative that evolves. You're doing some amazing stuff out there, so I'm really hoping that you've got more amazing stuff coming out. So can you tell our listeners what's coming up in the world of Seth Skorkowski? Well, um, I've got the sequel to Mountain of Daggers coming out this October called Sea of Quills. Yes. Uh, nine stories. I, I got a little bit more long-winded, so instead of 11, it's nine, but they're <laughs> the exact same length. And uh, I'm currently working on uh, my third uh, Vaudican novel uh, titled Ibenus, uh, which will follow a different character and a different weapon and uh, kind of uh, be something different than the other two. I want to make them all fresh and different from each other. Okay. And I'm also doing a, a bunch of short stories I'm trying to hawk out there that are <laughs> uh, they're in the in the Valdican world, but they're uh, before the events in the first book. They're just one story adventures of different demon hunters and different times. So I'll hopefully get a few of those out there. And eventually, one day, once I've got enough words written, I'll put, put them together and make it as a, a collection. That's an intriguing prospect. The, the idea of, of collateral stories that, uh, that affirm and explore different, different aspects of the story verse. That's an awesome idea. I love that. 
So it's uh, well, because in the in the first book, I had characters that I didn't get to go as much into, or they talk about, but you never meet them. And now I get to show characters um, either better or for the first time, or just something completely uh, different from everything else. Like I have a 1930s story coming out from MB Press uh, pretty soon, and it will be a you know 1934 pulp uh, vampire hunt. <laughs> you know, completely new characters, completely new weapons, and it's meant to be a standalone. So hopefully a new reader will read it and go, wow, that's great. And then suddenly, oh, my God, there's a whole series like this. So, <laughs> Well, and you had done a lot of research, as I recall, uh, during my stalking, uh, researching of you uh, for, for, the, for the 20 minutes with. You had actually, like, repurposed the, the Call of Cthulhu uh, uh, role-playing game, hadn't you? And, and reset this whole thing in 1925? Uh, yeah, the... Uh, I'm a massive role-playing nerd, <laughs> and uh, one of my, my favorite systems had been the uh, Cyberpunk 2020 interlock system. It's very, mm. very easy to Cyberpunk use. represent, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so we took the interlock system, and I used a bunch of, uh, I called it Pulp Era Unlimited. It was my name for it. I made a little handbook that only my players have. You can't buy it. And uh, we did you know, Call of Cthulhu mixed with a lot of the old kind of pulp tropes, and it was a lot of fun. Now, did any did any of that figure into this upcoming short story at all? A, a little bit, actually. The 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 Volican series more inspired the pulp series. Yeah, uh, true. But uh, one one thing that actually inspired both was I, I read a couple pieces by an old British author named Dennis Wheatley, and he had a 1934 or 35 novel called The Devil Rides Out. And that that short story, The uh, Vampire of Somerset, is very inspired okay. uh, by the works of Wheatley. All right. Friends, tune into that. Get, grab that book and read that before you read uh, uh, Seth's next short story in that, in that area. And we can, we can do a compare and contrast. Anything else as far as, as fiction goes? Uh, well, as, as fiction goes, no, I've, I've got the novel. I'll be doing uh, the FinCon uh, convention coming up this uh, September. Uh, which is kind of cool. You know, first time I went there, I went as a guy that went to a workshop and basically had everything smashed down and <laughs> told to start over, kid. You did a practice novel now to do the real job, and now I'm going as the guest author. Oh, so, at least one of the guest authors. Yeah, uh, so that's kind of a, a cool evolution. A karmic cycle that. complete. Awesome. But that's about it. Really? No, no other, no other conventions. No, I've uh. Well, you know, with with my my normal day job, I've got a blackout period that's in July through August, and that's oh. when all the really big conventions are. Right, right. And then, uh, you know, trying to schedule ones out where, you know, one, I'd be mildly relevant, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> figuring it out. So, I'm I'm looking. All right. Okay. What what about suggestions? Uh, uh, I I can tell you that convergence and confusion and ReaderCon uh, all happen in the wintertime ish. Time zones. I think they all do. No, one of them is in towards the summer, but two of them are in the winter. Check those out. Um, what about uh, what about Ren Fairs? Real quick, uh, top Ren Fairs recommended to our listeners to attend. Texas Renaissance Festival, definitely. <laughs> Bing. Um, and then my, my kind of my home fair, I guess, would be Scarborough Renaissance Fair and uh, then Sherwood Renaissance Fair. Basically, if you're in Texas, those are the big three. Okay, very cool. Well, let me turn the mic over to to my co-host, Alistair Stewart, who I know has has news, has stuffs, and has things out in the world. Al, what's what's coming up for you, man? 
Oh, all kinds of stuff. Um, I'm now, I think, officially in my eighth year of hosting Pseudopod, which means for the eight for eight straight years I've been successfully doing oral Jack Hillian and Chris Stevens cosplay, and no one's noticed apart from anyone <laughs> listens to the episodes I confess that on. Um, I'm also uh, doing an awful lot of uh, writing role-playing supplements at the moment, in fact. Uh, I spent quite a lot of last year doing the Tenth Doctor source book for the official Doctor Who role-playing game. Um, I have a piece I'm putting together for a game from Eden Studios, which is most of this month, and which means I get to watch really interesting, weird, spiky science fiction movies like The Signal for Research and Tax Write-Off. Um, <laughs> Bonus! Absolutely. Uh, and I'm waiting on edits for as, as we speak for the third draft of the most fun I've had so far this year. I did a setting for a really, really good... Uh, indie role-playing game called Spark, put out by Jason Peter. And Jason, I'm really sorry if I just pronounced your name wrong. Um, <laughs> he he contacted me and said, you know, I really like your stuff, and I know you write role-playing things. Would you like to pitch something to me? And I pitched him four things, and he said, these are all good, but not quite there. Do you have anything else? And threw him three more things. And the one he's gone for is this really interesting... Um, the The best way to describe it is... It has the kind of frontier law elements of Sparks Nevada Marshall on Mars crossed with invasion of the body snatchers, nanotechnology, and what happens when the Star Trek ideal of we meet up with all these peaceful alien races and go off and explore stuff goes horrifyingly wrong. <laughs> and I, I, I really, really enjoyed it, especially the second draft where I figured out what it was doing, which is, is really nice to see. So that's <laughs> that always uh, helps when I'm, you're writing something, right? <laughs> it, exactly. And I mean, with me, it takes about a week. You know, I'll be writing the grocery list or something. And I'll go, oh, yeah, that's what that story needs. A thing. <laughs> a thing. Yes. Um, <laughs> you have given me my other favorite job so far this year with Vex Mosaic, and uh, I'm having so much fun pulling this ridiculous stuff out of my head. <laughs> just in, in, and you, you are, and this is a thing I think very few people know about you, Dave. You're an astonishingly good editor. You're very, very on point, and you're very attentive, and you can see the points where I waffle, <laughs> and you can see the points where I throw something out and don't pay enough attention to it and drag it back in. And you're a delight to work for. And <laughs> those those two pieces are, are legitimately some of the most fun I've had this year. I appreciate that. And friends, if you want to tune in on what uh, Al's talking about, go out to VexMosaic.com. Uh, uh, Al's essay on uh, uh, the Captain Captain America's startling moment of clarity is uh, one of the premier, uh, one of the one of the inaugural essays that we posted up on that site. So check out VexMosaic.com, and uh, there will be more from Master Stewart out there to be seen. Fantastic. And also, um, I've taken my first step back into writing fiction for about two years. Huzzah! Uh, yeah, there's there's an anthology that a friend of mine asked me to submit to, uh, and I, I won't go into details on it specifically, simply because I look like an absolute dick if I submit <laughs> it, and he goes, yeah. <laughs> um, but he, he basically asked for quite a tight turnaround on a 1,500-word piece, and I wrote the first draft, and it was awful, and I wrote the second draft, and it was awful with a small A, and I killed off the third draft this morning, and again, it works now, and it's a really it's a really nice little 1,500-word horror piece about a building in London that I'm fascinated and slightly disturbed by. So that's been a good chunk of my, of my week. So, yeah, I'm, I'm keeping busy. I would say so. I would say so. What about conventions? Oh, I'm at Worldcon 
Yeah, I'll see you there. You're going to be there? I'm going to be there. Fucking hell. <laughs> there, there will be pints in the pub, my man. Outstanding. <laughs> yeah, um, both both I and, and Marguerite will be at Wellcon. Awesome. And uh, we will also be running the, the Red Cloak unit, for which is the volunteers for FantasyCon, which this year is being held in Nottingham, which up until last year was where we lived. So one of our best friends is referring to it as, I can walk home from this con, <laughs> uh, which will be kind of fun. And I believe we're doing Nine Worlds as well, which is the best con on the UK circuit by a country mile. That's what I hear. That's what I hear. Peter Peter Newman said the same thing. So Pete, uh, Pete and Emma are a fixture at Nine Worlds, and <laughs> it's the most welcoming, most open-minded, most varied convention I've been to. Awesome. See, if we keep talking it up, it's going to become this big monstrous dragon con thing. So, 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 uh, okay. All right. Make it happen. Making it seat. Now, Seth, I know that you had, uh, uh, early aspirations of writing game materials. So, uh, now that I've introduced you and Alistair, uh, uh if you, if you ever feel compelled to, uh, explore that, that nascent desire from your early days, Al's the man to talk to. Oddly enough, sir, as, as you were talking, um, something did strike me. Google a system called fake core. Mm, yeah. Um, core? Yes. Core. Very, very good, very modular, killingly adaptable, and available as a form of freeware, I think. If not, it's very, very cheap. Put out by Evil Hat Productions. You maybe want to try the Atomic Robo tie-in game that they did. Firstly, because it's Atomic <laughs> Robo, and it's the best comic ever written. And secondly, because it's a really good introduction to the system. I mention it for two reasons. Firstly, because it's a really good, good, fun system. And secondly, because um, there have been a lot of fake course supplements written, mm-hmm. world books written and put out by various people through Kickstarter, all of which, almost without exception, have double funded. <laughs> so that interesting sounding 1950s <laughs> monster hunting thing that you were doing and fake course stylistically has a little bit of crossover with, with cyberpunk you might be able to turn into an actual thing. Absolutely. They did the, they did the, uh, the Dresden files was the core. So yeah, Seth, there you go, man. See, high players will hate me because then we'll have to play it as I'm playtesting it. Like, you never stick to a campaign long enough. <laughs> <laughs> the other DM, GM lament. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I will make sure that all of this fabulosity gets put into the liner notes, assuming, well, it's the internet. This thing can be three feet long, and that's fine. They'll, they'll, the, the listeners can clicky-click and, and check out all of this fabulousness. What I'd like to do right now is, is take a brief pause and give some potosphere airtime to to another fabulous podcast or an ebook or, or some other promotional awesomeness. And when we come back, I would love to sit down with the both of you and workshop a story. What do you say? That sounds fantastic. Definitely. Awesome. I'm down with it too, friends. Don't you go anywhere. We will be right back. When the bones of the Magi are stolen from their resting place in a German cathedral, a dying priest's whispered clue catapults former Navy SEAL Dane Maddock into the midst of a deadly race to solve a centuries-old conspiracy. Danger lurks at every turn, and no one knows where the clues will lead or what they will uncover. From ancient cathedrals to hidden temples to icy mountain peaks, Dane must outrun and outwit his enemies in the thrilling adventure Icefall. J.F. Penn says, If you're after a fast-paced read, Matic and Bones will take you on a winter race through snow-covered cathedrals, ice caves, pagan temples, and Christian myth in search of the skulls of the Magi. 
Iceball packs in the fist fights, cipher cracking, and ancient secrets that all action adventure lovers will enjoy. Icefall, a Danematic adventure by David Wood, on sale at Audible, iTunes, and wherever books and ebooks are sold. Welcome back, everyone. The thing that you just listened to someone talk about, it's a great thing. You should listen to it, read it, buy it, digest it, whichever, but <laughs> not all of them. That would be weird. Anyway, we're back. And uh, Dave. Yes, we need to get the guest writer on here. The fabulosity of the roundtable does not happen without the bold and the courageous guest writer. Uh, and dear friends, I am looking forward to the day when we can have our guest writer for this episode back as the guest host. Because there is no way I can give full justice to his full background. So the abbreviated version involves moving to Taiwan to become a black market English teacher, practicing Aikido on the same mountain that the mythic monkey king pissed on, and living in Paris for two years as a recluse playing Diablo 2 with his future wife who was attending architecture school at the time. This, this is like a modern day Hemingway that we've got going on here. Uh, his formative literary consumption as a child included cross-section diagram educational picture books, a series of nonfiction books for kids about things like acid rain and the Bhopal chemical disaster, and gigantic encyclopedias about haunted houses and locations across America. He wrote his first short story on a DOS IBM green screen word processor at seven years old. His short story, 3 a.m. Job, was shortlisted by a tiny Scottish publisher of dystopian fiction, Almond Press, for their Broken Worlds story competition. And as a side note, Almond Press is currently holding a story competition and they're taking international submissions. So get on that. And he's a recent alumni of Cat Rambo's How to Write Fantasy and Science Fiction Workshop. He currently lives in the UK where he works the graveyard shift at the worst rated Tesco grocery store in the entire franchise. Dear friends, please welcome to the writer's chair here at the round table, Mark Schultz. Mark, dude, first of all, you, you've got an epic background. So clearly the, the bold steps are not a you're not a stranger to the bold steps required to live a bold life, but it's never easy to put your baby up for scrutiny by strangers. So so thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. You know what? It's a party. <laughs> um, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring the best I can for you guys to discuss, and I'll try to learn something in the fallout. Dude, it's inevitable. That's how we roll around here. But you got to tell me what 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 does it mean to be an illegal English teacher in Taiwan? You fly over there, and uh, you work for any number of small private schools. As uh, you're you're basically a paid clown. Uh, or entertainer because they, they over there they go to school uh, for an immense amount of time each day and after school's done their parents often are working so they need them to to be somewhere so I will entertain them with English throwing a sticky ball at a blackboard or going over various different games and uh, <laughs> somewhere in there you manage to actually teach them a few words a little bit of grammar mostly you play with them and, and this it's, is it's this is illegal and you're taking like cash under the table is that what's going on that's exactly what happened if i had been caught i would have been deported <laughs> all and right one of, my, one of my bosses tried to get me deported but it didn't work because i was illegal she could, had no legal basis for getting me in trouble <sighs> 
dude, you, you're just dodging the legal. But you're a fugitive from justice. I like uh, yeah. I like that in a man. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, look, let's dive into this. Mark, you've got a story. You know how this works. We give you five to eight minutes. You give us the title, the genre, the format. Give us a tagline and some thematic structures. Introduce us to the world and the characters. Give us some tent poles of story that we can work from. And we'll dive into a fabulous workshop. But I'm getting out of the way, sir. The mic is all yours. Here goes. The working title is Killer Man, a novel with science fiction, post-apocalyptic, and Western elements. The hook is, when a slave is tasked with retrieving a young girl whose existence spells doom for his people, he must take responsibility for his taboo family legacy before the scientist that created her completes a plan of cross-cultural domination. This is a story about survivance, the struggle for personal and cultural autonomy in the face of oppression. It's a secondary sci-fi world. The tech level is not too far ahead of present day, but with stylistic differences. The story centers around one town, the last living colony of an overseas empire, nestled between an unforgiving red sand desert and an ocean awash with iridescent algae. Three cultures are in play. The Nakai, an indigenous tribe with a complex system of story history. They have a strict taboo against killing and cling to their cultural identity by a thread. Kinship rules and oral history are integral to their culture. There are the imperial colonists, an oppressive, competitive culture with a racist doctrine of genetic purity and separatism. They worship monuments and icons. They hold the Nakai as second-class citizens and slaves. The Iba, a formerly oppressed tribe, now a warband, they conquer local tribes and strip them of their identity. They totemize architecture, believing that imperial edifices contain messages demanding conquest of the colony. In the past, the world's ecosystem underwent disastrous change. One town found itself isolated. Colonial women became sterile, fell ill, and died. The native population was largely unaffected. The colony births children in a laboratory. The Iba outnumber the colonists, and the threat of a full-scale invasion looms. This is the framework for the drama. Our protagonist is Balkiel, a young orphaned Nikai slave whose father led a bloody, failed revolt. Balkiel has inherited his father's taboo legacy of murder and is shunned by his own people. He maintains a secret but strained relationship with his sister, Noi. Balkio holds a deep desire to be accepted by his own people, but is conflicted by his social position and sense of loyalty to our antagonist. He is terrified that he will become a killer like his father and lose all connection to his Nikai roots. His strength is loyalty. His weaknesses are fear, fatalism, and self-hatred. Noi is a significant supporting character, Balkio's sister by blood. She's a newly admitted young member of the Nikai storyteller's circle and works as a greenhouse laborer. Her, her goal is to find out how to balance her influence with finding how her brother's legacy fits into Nakai society. Her strengths are insight and ter termination. Her weaknesses are pride and refusal to compromise. Daughter is a supporting character. The first biological, biologically female child born since the femicide, raised in isolation. I'm not certain of her strengths and weaknesses yet. Her circumstances are kind of extreme, but her goal is an understanding of her own identity. The primary antagonist is Dr. Morlow, a genetic scientist who works at the Imperial Birthing Facility. He has little political influence, untrustworthy colleagues, and no family. He desires to leave a powerful legacy in his name, a mighty, lasting monument. 
Morlo has secretly created Dotter, but is terrified his work will be stolen from him. His strengths are intellect and understanding of culture. His weaknesses are myopic racism and classic hubris. He believes that culture and myth are tools, not fickle forces in their own right. The kickoff of the story is that Dotter escapes captivity into the desert. Balkio, Morlo's only trusted servant, is tasked with retrieving her. Morlo promises Balkio that if Morlo gains respect and power, he can help give Balkio renewed purpose. Noi meets with Balkio before he can leave. She's worried his distance from her and closeness to the colonists will destroy their relationship. He asks her to use her new social position to help him, but Noi admits she hasn't been able to negotiate any place for him. After an argument, Balkio tells Noi it's best he disappears from her life than continue to be her shameful secret. Noi resolves to prove that there is a place for him. When Balkio catches up with Daughter, he's shocked to discover that she's biologically female, meaning Morlo possesses the power to revive the Empire. Noise tries to open discussion of the oral history of the Nekai killing taboo in her circle. Her efforts draw suspicion. She feels marginalized when the circle begins having meetings without her. A mysterious figure is rumored to be visiting them when she's not present. Her resolve deepens, but her wounded pride weakens her tact. Through a single sympathetic member of the circle, Noi learns the myth of Killer Man, a boogeyman revenant figure that represents the murder taboo. She resolves to prove to the circle that Killerman's myth may have more than one interpretation and may provide a solution to their oppression. The middle of the story, Balkyo's discovery of daughter ignites conflict inside him. Her existence means no hope of the Nakai finding their own space. Imperial domination will ensue. There's also a mode of jealousy and resentment, the beginning of understanding that Morlo has replaced his birth father in role. He also discovers small physical signs that daughter is part Nakai, signs Morlo tried but failed to cover up, which goes against the gene purity rhetoric that Morlo preaches to him. Daughter is disoriented and confused. Balkyo feels empathy for her, but a dark part of him is also tempted to kill her. Fear and shame hold him back. An Iba ambush captures Daughter. He attempts to rescue her, and she refuses to go with him. He's captured as a result. The Iba recognize she's a product of Imperial Sciences, a biological monument. They offer her a place as their living war banner, and she accepts. Balkio is confronted by a man who recognizes him, his father, Denny. Denny survived colonial justice, escaped to the desert, and started a new family with the Iba. Denny beckons him to betray Morlo and Noi and join his blood family among the Iba. The Iba prepare to march on one town. The Nakai Circle debates Noi's reinterpretation of Killerman's mythical role, but ultimately refuses to accept it. Noi is publicly embarrassed. She insults and belittles the whole circle as stodgy cowards. The sole sympathetic voice in the circle offers to take the blame for her outbursts and is ejected from his position, leaving her alone. She finds herself blackmailed by a masked figure known as Mima, who claims to be the living embodiment of Nakai law. Mima threatens to expose Noi's family history to everyone if she doesn't put up and shut up. This mysterious figure has been promising the Circle the path to a promised land if they build a monument to her. The Circle has accepted. Noi resolves to discover Mima's true identity, risking her position in the Circle entirely, and finds out that Morlo is behind the ruse. And I don't know, for the life of me, how to end it. 
But <laughs> I, by the end, I know that I want uh, Balkio to accept the role of killer man, to kill to preserve his people's dignity. I want Noi to inspire revolt through reclaiming her people's narrative. And I want Daughter to pursue the question of where she really belongs, who she really is, and face down her creator. All right. Holy crap. That was that was two pages of notes, dude. That's that's almost never happens for me. So there's 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 lots of food to work with. Excellent pitch, sir. Well done. Now, what what are you hoping to get out of the next you know, forty five minutes or so? I'm sure that there are compelling elements and wasted information in what I've laid down. So what I want to do is focus on what conflicts and character character elements really drew people's attention. And then try to prune out the dead weight and work to get the good stuff on stage center so we can start getting me a roadmap to discovery right on. Because scene, motif, and dialogue are more natural to me, but I cannot plot my way to the corner store, <laughs> let alone through a story. So <laughs> that's what I need help with. Well, dude, you, you've come to the right place. This, this is an august gathering of, of literati to help you with exactly that. But before we do, we must cover our ass. And... <laughs> Alistair, would you be so kind as, as to deliver and hold forth with the patented round table disclaimer to do that? Absolutely. Mark, you're about to experience a veritable deluge of ideas, insights, and inspirations. It's important you realize that everything said from this point forward by myself, Dave, or Seth might be complete bullshit. This is your story, and you decide what to use and what to cast aside. And if you're okay with that, on we go. I accept the terms and conditions. Bam! Awesome. We're off the hook. <laughs> Everything is fair game now. All right. Well, let's dive into this then. As is our tradition here at the roundtable, we start with a quick once around the table with just some first impressions and any questions of clarification that need to be invoked. And we always start with our guest host. So, Seth Skorkowski, if you would start us off, sir, what are your first impressions of Mark's story pitch and idea? And, and do you have any questions that need to be clarified? Okay. Um, Mark, a uh, couple quick questions. Is this going to be a young adult or adult story? I missed that if you said it. I didn't clarify because I'm, I don't feel like I'm aware enough as an author to know which one it would fall better under. But if the if the characters are young, I understand it could be a YA or middle grade, right? Uh, yeah, most mostly is like you know how how graphic are we going to get? Uh, is I tend to write pretty grim. Okay. And uh, does daughter know that she's female? I haven't really decided. We could explore that. I figured that uh, she she knows that she's been she's been raised in isolation, so it's entirely possible she doesn't even fully understand her role. And there may we may need to make more space for her to explore that. And just real quick, how old is daughter? Um, I was thinking around between thirteen and fifteen. Okay, when when she escapes. Okay. And uh, aside from uh, the doctor, does anybody else know about her prior to her escape? I didn't think so, no. I, I thought figured Belchio, um didn't even know, even though they have a fairly close relationship. Okay. So he's very no, close. No Igor assistant or anything like that. <laughs> okay. Hey, there could be. There, there could be, if it makes it cooler. So... And so, and then the mysterious visitor, that's the one that ends up being the doctor. Yeah, Mima, could, I, I, I had the idea of a, of a, 
of an antagonist who had not exactly a split personality, but two identities that he hastened to rush between. But he, Mima could also be a, um, an agent of Morlo's who's loyal to him that we didn't know about previously. Okay. That is all I have for right now. I'll probably have like a hundred more questions in about two minutes. <laughs> sure, we all will. Uh, what, what, what about first impressions, uh, Seth? Just, just your, your initial gut response. Uh, my, my initial gut response, uh, was coming of age story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which that's why I was wondering if it was YA, cause it has a very, uh, coming of age, especially if daughter's gonna be running the 13 to 15, uh, camp, cause that's an onset of puberty, and yeah. there's a lot of, um, identity discovering, uh, going on with a lot of the characters, which is a, a very common theme in YA, is kind of discovering, you know, what you are, breaking traditions, and that sort of. Okay, I could so. write YA, but um, we'll see. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, or near adult. Time shape itself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's let's pass it over to Al. Al, what's your what are your first impressions, and uh, do you have any questions for Mark? Yeah. Um. To both. My first impressions are I really like the uh, societal layout that you've mm-hmm. got. And mm-hmm. I, I'm a colossal architecture nerd. So you give me a group of people who revere architecture as, you know, religious icons and you have my attention. <laughs> um, there are a couple of things which leapt out at me and I'll, I'll kind of work, it, work down from the top. How married are you to the idea that Balkio's dad has been off in the wilds building a new life for himself? Um, I'm I'm not married to that much in the story besides the themes. Cool. Because my first instinct was that is a little bit too Ben Kenobi for me. The idea that, that he's gone off and rebuilt his life, and, and you have very good reasons why he's not returned home, certainly. It just doesn't yeah. feel like it fits. Because that's yeah, cool. It, yeah. My, my, my instinct is, is that, you know, but, I mean, Balkio is a really, really interesting character, and I love the fact that you've beaten the shit out of him before the story starts, because <laughs> I'm always a, always a sucker for that kind of thing. But I think he could take more, bluntly. And yeah. I, want, I wonder whether there is more emotional resonance in him finding some form of societal legacy of his father. Perhaps he runs into this group of people, and his dad lived with them for a time and died. Or sure. that he's left a lasting impression in this other culture, which inspires, rightly or wrongly, Balkio's actions in the second half of the book. Sure, that sounds that sounds very interesting to me. Um, my my other thing, going but going back to uh, the the idea of of, archi- of architecture as icon, I love that. I love not just that, but the idea of them looking at this biologically constructed kid, going, "You've been built. That means you've been designed. That means we worship you. That <laughs> is really cool." The <laughs> one pitfall I could see you having with that and in particular with the way that you have the female plotline back in the village laid out for the time being, I'll I'll come to that in a second is I worry that the kid could be really passive Yeah, I was also worried about that Mm -hmm. you you have an opportunity to do two things there which both of these leap out at me straight away and the first is perhaps these people because they worship structure also worship inertia and the, you know, initially this is a fantastic thing for her, and she loves it. I mean, she's a kid, and right. you know, these people, you know, I, I, I instantly thought of the old episode of Family Guy where Stewie gets the butlers. You know, you bring me the Financial Times. You two fight. <laughs> <laughs> but 
she'll act out and she'll realize that there are limits. And yes. they all realize that she doesn't like those limits. And suddenly that raises the stakes for her. And it mean, means they are a far more interesting and far more chaotic uh, force in the novel. And the the other thing with the, the female plot back in the village, I, I love that Balkyo is just bounced from pillar to, from pillar to post throughout that. I, I love that you have very deliberately slightly maimed his agency because that's always a really fun thing to do and that your female lead is is very much no it's fine i've got this my concern is that her plot line could end up being a series of progressively more passive aggressive council meetings <laughs> yeah. I, that was my concern as well and i wonder whether you could give her more stuff to do um, i would love to the, the the two things which leapt out at me were when she first sees or first hears about this mysterious figure that the council are meeting with, that, you know, inevitably she'll ask who it is and, and they'll basically go, nah, nah, not telling you. And you have an opportunity to do a lot of interesting world building with her there if you decide to go down a route like her going, fuck you, I'm going to find this out for myself. <laughs> right. Research montage, motherfuckers. <laughs> I will tell you, I actually, uh, one of my plans, maybe plans, was that she tries to steal the identity for herself. Oh my god, that's brilliant. <laughs> Seriously, that, that, that's absolutely brilliant, because that makes perfect sense. And I mean, again, yeah. you, you can kind of satirize the willingness of them to follow this blind ideal. I love that. Yeah, th- those are the things which, which jumped out at me as, as points which were interesting and points which were, I, I hate the word problematic because it's the word which people <laughs> tend to use when they don't know what word to use. But right. The points which I think offer some challenges to you. And from what you tell me, you're, you're kind of aware of those challenges already and you're already working on ways around them. Mm. And and he's come here, which is a, a guaranteed cure for whatever, what ails you as far as your story yeah. goes. <laughs> So yeah, um, I I think it has huge amounts of thought behind it, very clearly, mm-hmm. and I I think it is exactly where you need it to be, in that you've got this fantastic setup, and you're not entirely certain how to land it, and I I think we're going to be able to help you out with that. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Uh, for myself, I I where where Al spooges over architectural things when you give me a culture that reveres storytelling I'm I'm all over it I'm that that they're my people I get that uh so um and and I really like the I like the 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 triune structure that you've set up and and repeated several times with the three different cultures and I really like the Iba being a, a, a variation, a, a branch off of an enslaved tribe that have since gone feral, basically, uh, uh, after the the cruelties of the colonial the colonial culture coming in. Um, so the world and what you've got going here is awesome. I did have a question about for just as far as characters go. Uh, for Morlo, he wants legacy. He wants to leave a lasting thing. He has no family. Why? Why does he want legacy? What is? What is? That's that's a that's an that's a thing. That's not a motivation. Right. What's really underneath that? What is his fear? Uh, his fear? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you where I was coming from with the monument bit and see if we can – we might have to explore what his fear is here. Okay. But um, his, uh, his, the desire for a monument is that the, the – in imperial culture, the bigger the monument, the more of a person you were. Okay. And they believe that the, their, 
their race in their view uh that the monuments hold this sort of uh quasi religious propaganda uh that the their race carries an invisible fire inside of their own architecture that um, if they don't continue to build and expand and grow, their culture will die and be extinguished because the fire goes out. I don't okay. know if that tells us any information, but no. it might lead us in a direction. Sure, 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 sure. I, 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 uh, I'm not sure that's enough. I, I, I don't know. I'm still trying to wrap my head as as to whether this is this is a a small intimate cultural story or if this is going to be a big you know continental the shaping of future generations story. Uh, and if it's the latter, that's we might need to explore something deeper for that. But we can leave that for now. Um, at the top of the story, daughter escapes. Why? No clue. Okay. Um, Sorry. My my initial thought was that she didn't escape, but rather somebody left the door open. Yeah. Uh, and and wants her out in the world for some reason, and that unfortunately would introduce another player in the game. And right now you're 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 very cast. Not necessarily. Yeah. Okay. All right. You got something. All right. So cool. We'll leave that out there. Um. Later on, we discovered that that Morlo, the genetic puricist. The guy who believes that the colonials are the only true genetic race used Nakai genetic material in the creation of child, of daughter? Really? Yep. The, it's, it's the hypocrisy of the continuity oh. of race. He's obsessed with showing that he can save their race. and He's trying to hide the fact that he's actually had to sacrifice his own beliefs just for prestige. That was where I was going with that. Okay. Okay. I can see that. I'm I'm thinking just just for now, let's let's table that. I because it really I'm not sure it factors into the larger story that's unfolding around here. It's an intriguing bit, but it seems like an extra piece of information unless unless we tie it into his hypocrisy and, and his undoing ultimately. That's a possibility. That could that could actually be like a big revelation that comes out later. Um, to riff on what Al was saying about Balkio finding his father, um, what occurred to me in finding his father would be up till this point in the story, Balkio is f- fretting and fretting and fretting about, oh my God, I, I, I had this murder taboo. I had this murder taboo. This is a terrible, terrible thing. If he finds his father and his father is the embodiment of everything hideous and horrible about the murder taboo, that could be the emotional holy crap moment that could break Balkio out of that cycle when confronted tangibly with his greatest fears that he is a murderer. And if his father is a freaking savage murdering son of a bitch, then seeing that grounding it in reality could be, I don't want that. I, I deny that or whatever. Another possibility for, for that line. Um, and that's that's pretty much all I've got for this initial run. I, I will say, I honestly, Mark, I didn't get interested until Daughter went to the EBA and and became their war banner. At that point, I'm going, ooh, yeah, that's awesome. Up to that point, there's not a lot going on for me. Uh, uh, and and that that's 
might be a personal aesthetic. I'm not, I'm not saying that that needs any kind of addressing, but up to this point, you got people looking around, you got uh, Noy doing some council stuff, you got Morlo doing some sneaky stuff. There's not a lot happening. There's not a lot. There's not, there's not an, ex- I don't say you need an explosion, a chase scene, or a fight to start off a story, but there needs to be some kind of detonation, some spark that's lit, that sets the stakes and sets them high and, and uh, uh, raises a question. A question that cannot be answered unless the reader turns and reads the entire book. Uh, and I guess that's one of the things that I'm looking for there. Uh, and, and we can explore that as we, as we move forward. So, so, all right. So, initial thoughts put out there. Some, some questions tossed out. Uh, Seth, where do you want to start with this? Where can we start lashing this down and, and really giving, giving a strong foundation for Mark to build from? Um. Well, actually, my first thought, it goes back to the escape of daughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my, my, my gut instinct is the same thing. What if the doctor has a competitor, a rival that he's going up mm. against? So it's not just I'm trying to build this legacy. It's I need to be better than this son of a bitch that um, he's going up against. And so you could have the rival leave the door open mm. um, or... Uh, the next thing I was thinking was just the the escape. So what prompts her to escape? So one thought that I had is if he's been trying to genetically create uh, females that would be fertile and continue on, um, if she stumbles across the failed experiments, like Alien mm-hmm. 4 style, maybe there are several girls she grows up with and periodically they go missing as he rules them out as successful and he sees one of them getting cut open to figure out where he went wrong. Um, another one would be he can't he can't build her in the city itself for whatever reason, and there is he, she is being transported, and the transport gets under the attack of the Eba. Ooh, nice. Or hey. maybe it is done by the rival doctor, and because I'm a visual thinker. I think it would be badass if it was somehow deposited her in the middle of a glowing sea in the <laughs> middle of night. And this is her first time to go outside. She's surrounded by this glowing water and there's flames and screams and she's kind of I making do love her way seeing, ashore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it could be we could have pirates. It could be you know she was sea de- pirates. Yes, taking taking her up the coastline uh, on a secure ship that gets attacked by uh, Eba pirates. Yes, there's a visual. So, and then the uh, the other thought that I have is if you have a uh, multiple doctors, or Marlowe might have been kicked out of whatever super science medical society that he wants to you know belong in, um, if it was the rival doctor that is Mima as yeah. it was undermining, because I really liked the uh, that mm-hmm. oh, that out, yeah. Uh, then that's pretty much it. Mostly to focus on the escape and add a kind of an air of mystery to it, rather than just one day she says, "Oh, the hell with this," and just escapes. Um, what sparks her to say, "What the hell, the hell with this"? Yeah. Or she's been very pampered, very taken care of her whole life, and all of a sudden she is thrust out in the wilds, and suddenly all this death, all this chaos happens, and that is basically her backdrop. Uh, she might have a guide for a short time that then succumbs to his wounds or gets eaten by a crab monster or whatever. <laughs> but 
ultimately she is alone and somehow the doctor knows that she's either alive or that uh, Raquel needs to eliminate her so there's no proof that this doctor was doing this or the other rival doctors don't take her as their, say, she's their experiment. That actually raises an interesting question for me, Seth. Mark, what, what's Morlo's endgame with daughter? I mean, what is his ultimate plan for her? Is he is is, I mean, he's he's succeeded. He's created a woman, uh, uh, from of of colonial stock. Yay, we're saved. So why is he keeping her locked up? What's his deal? Have you ever had an idea in flux where it could be three things and you're not sure? It's like quantum. You're not sure which one it's going to collapse to. Okay. Because okay. I had I had uh, I had the notion that he intentionally meant for her to to go to the Eba so that they would invade and he could attempt to take advantage of their invasion. Another was that uh, he just he just wants her back and he's keeping her secret because there's some sort of pressure on him. There's someone someone thinks he's working on something super secret and he's worried that he's going to get found out and that someone will just rob him of what he worked on so hard. It's, it's, I'm kind of balancing between whether it's intentional that she was let go. Okay. We'll keep playing with that. And just real quick, is this this plague that that was going on? Uh, uh, did it extend to the home colony or, or the home empire, or is that just here? I I assumed yes. For the purposes of the story, they have no contact with anywhere else in the world. But if it would make it cooler, maybe they'd do. Okay, I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking one of the, one of the thoughts that I had was uh, uh, if if the colony is failing. Uh, uh, that the empire is going to cut them off. Just say, you know, you're 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 a loss investment. Uh, you're on your own. Screw you. Uh, and and this could be Morlo's effort to uh, uh, create. I, I I don't know. Find something that would draw the empire's attention back because the future of the colonists here in this world, in this colony, uh, uh, their their lives are at stake. They, I mean, there's there's no greater stakes in the world than we're going to be cut off and we can't breed. We're racial purists, so we can't breed with the locals. We're fucked, and and that'll make people do some all kinds of strange things. Al, what are your thoughts on on where we're going so far? Where do you want to go? Um, this is really cool because Seth actually came out with the thing which occurred to me and made it better than mine was. <laughs> uh, the power know, of brainstorming, baby. <laughs> you know, the, the, the temptation to just sit here and go, you're welcome, America, is almost <laughs> overwhelming, but I, I will resist. Um, I think there's, there's a circuit that we can close here, which is really effective, because I love the idea of the Doctor having a rival. I think that's really cool. And it strikes me that maybe the rival is the person who breaks daughter out. Okay, because that either a throws a massive spanner into uh, you know the the works, or b potentially makes her an asset as well as a figurehead. That you have her creator trying to chase her down to get her back. You have the creator's rival trying to chase her down to vivisector and find out how she works. And um, you have this group of people who she falls in with who are worshiping her as a living totem, and that on the one hand, could turn her into a plot tennis ball, but on the other, you could give her so much agency and so many interesting things to do by having this kid play these three people off against one another. Giving her a little more savvy, a little more, a little more, move her up in age a little bit and be aware of her value. And Precisely. Okay. The, the, the other idea I had about who lets her out is the female lead. Noi? Yeah. Okay. Because that in turn would, especially if she knew 
a good idea or suspected a good chunk of stuff, or better still, had a perfectly plausible and extremely realistic and logical, but completely bloody wrong theory as to what daughter was, which led to her releasing her. Then suddenly, again, you 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 can throw an extra thing into her plot. You can ensure that daughter has a reason to interact with three or four separate groups of people, and you know, the, one of the most interesting things you can do with a character is have them epically screw up in the first few pages and then <laughs> realize they have and try and rebuild it. So I, I wonder from, from my point of view, I wonder whether daughter is actually the piece in the puzzle you can move. And if you put her in the right place, that solves four other problems. I could see Noi, uh, uh, doing that because she's, you know, obviously Balkio is a servant to Morlo, who we could paint as this 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 vilified, just the worst thing of everything that there is about the colonists and and how he treats the the the, the all the tribes and the other people, blah blah blah. And and having she's concerned that he's being so close to this vile person, she wants to get him fired, basically. And and she released it, it, Belchio's watch. Belchio's job is to watch her tonight. And Noi goes in and lets him loose, which is going to make it Belchio's fault that she's released. And Noi is banking on the fact that we first of all we take this this female abomination and you know maybe make her an abomination for in the in the eyes of of Belchio and Noi's tribe. And and go ahead, let her loose in the world. She'll die. Uh, uh, in the, in the, at the same time, Belchio gets in big trouble with Morlo. He'll beat him probably, uh, uh, but but ultimately he'll be thrown out of his service. And then Noi can further her ends of bringing her brother back into the fold and dealing with the things. A thought. What are you thinking, Mark? How, how's this resonating with you so far? Well, all of those are what you've given me is a list of potential solutions to problems. Some of which I had been aware of, and some of which I hadn't. So this is sounding. This is I like what we're getting into here. We, we have a lot of options uh, uh, and that, that always concerns me in a brainstorm because it's tough until we settle on one of them to really build a framework. Um, and I'm going to throw another one out here. I want to pose this question to Seth. Seth, uh, look, look, listening to this narrative, uh, uh, I'm hearing at least four POV characters. I'm hearing Belchio, Noi, Morlo, and Daughter. Yeah. That's, does that strike you as a little heavy? As far as POV characters go? Um, Yeah, right now I'm trying to do three in my story, and it's kind of difficult wrestling Mm. them all around. Now, you can can do it, but the other trick is you're going to have to be wrestling back and forth between them uh, kind of regularly, which means you're going to have to come up with what everyone is doing at certain times and then keep revisiting, so... You know, just cycling through them, and each time, each each character arc needs to have those boom, boom, boom moments, and and continue progressing. You can't have a boring character thread in there where the reader goes, "Oh God, this again." Yeah, um, well, actually, one one that I like to reference a lot is a Virtual Life by William Gibson, and he has a character in there that is actually kind of a wet noodle, but everyone around him is so fascinating that you're kind of watching it through his eyes. Uh, but, yeah, you want to have some sort of almost kind of put the hook at the end of each little point of view shot. Um, and then people are like, oh, what happens to them? And then you take them back to the last person they wanted to know what was going on. <laughs> exactly. Keep them turning pages. Uh, yeah, it's 3 o'clock in the morning and they're cursing you because they haven't been able to put it down yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if we can uh, uh, preserve the narrative that we have 
uh, but compress some of the storylines together. Uh, uh, Al, what are your thoughts on that? I think there is, I mean, I'm always really leery about both multiple viewpoint approaches and, and getting rid of them. Um, simply because it, it tends to be one of those things that's baked into the structure of a story as it's designed. Mm-hmm. But the, there is a, a fairly revolutionary thing which does strike me. Of the four characters that you've talked about, the one, strangely, that appears to be on a lower tier than the others is Valkyrie. Yeah. So perhaps, being more accurate, it maybe feels a little bit like his story is separate. And I wonder whether that's an on-ramp to solving your problem. I wonder whether there is a case for writing Balkio's story, his arc. He gets thrown out. He encounters whatever you decide to do with you know, his father or a monument to it. And seeing where that goes. Because if you cut the other 75% out, then firstly, inevitably, you're going to have processing power freed up to figure out how Balkio's story finishes. And secondly, you're going to have a much, much smaller burden to carry. It's something Chuck Wendig talks about an awful lot. He he advocates writing little five hundred word pieces where his char- where your characters go get coffee, just to see how they react. You know, the, to write them in little small situations. And I wonder whether Balkio's plot is your on ramp. If you pull it out, you write it by itself, and in doing so, you assess whether or not this is the book it fits in, or whether it's a story from a different world. And also in doing so, you maybe figure out where your ending is. Yeah. And that's something that I, I think I'd like to talk about next is is some possible end games for for this narrative as it's going forward. But yeah, that's a good point, Al. And, and I'm also a big advocate of those exercise writings and exploring just a single thread or a single moment and and having that really kind of inform character development and plot development. Mark, is that something you've ever indulged in? I could because um I, I had the feeling, the the intuition that there was something a little bit too much going on in all of this, mm-hmm. um, but I wasn't sure quite what. So I was doing my best to fold it all, you know, yeah, uh, fold it all together. So I that that could be a good a good thing to try, and it would certainly be shorter than attempting to construct an entire novel that in the end doesn't work out. Cause it's a lot of time, right? So it's a it's a good thing to try. Um, and uh, another thing is, um, I tried to fold the f- the the fear and the fate of killing into Noi finding room for a killer in a pacifistic society. I'm not sure if all of what I've going what I've got going on fits that. So that we could also try to condense it down more to that concept. I don't know if that's as intriguing as the other things that I've brought up, because the other stuff might actually be stealing the the limelight. One of the things that, that struck me as you were describing just the world was the fact that you've got three cultures. You've got these three very diverse, very different cultures that have different agendas and different objectives. If somehow we could limit the narrative to a representative of each of those cultures, so the reader is then treated to seeing that world through those characters and the stakes that are involved for all three of them as we move forward, that might give you the the 
first of all, if nothing else, the revelation of the world uh, uh, from three very intimate and and different perspectives, which is always cool, collapse your narrative a little bit. Maybe maybe make daughter one of those things that everyone sees and interacts with, but we don't have to be in her head. We can see her actions. Uh, uh, maybe Noi can be folded into Balkio's story, and she's another one that we don't actually have to see a POV for. Yeah, actually, well, figuring out POVs was an important thing to me because I didn't want it to be more than three because I know more than three is very tricky business. Yeah. So um, that is actually a pretty good idea, and I was considering trying to keep it to either their three POVs or trying to keep it two or three. So that's a, that's a really good idea. And like I Belchio, think... Morlo, and somebody from the Eba tribe, because we really don't have any yeah. representation yeah. of them. Uh, so we're creating a third character. Oh, damn. Crap. Well, it happens. Yeah. Like, you know, evoking, evoking a character from the Eba that evokes conflict in Belchio, something like that. Right, exactly. And it could be that father figure for, or as, as Al represented, maybe the father figure has been deified in some way by the Eba uh, uh, and his exploits or con- confrontation, something along those lines. Let's talk a little bit. We're, we're starting to run out of time here. And I'd like to talk a little bit about the end game uh, uh, a little bit. And one of my, I'm going to put my first thought out there is if, if we collapse the narratives into representations of the Eba, the, the, was it the Nakai? Yeah. And, and the colonials, uh, then whatever the end game is, it needs to have a stake for all three in some way, shape, or form. Uh, so, and, and I'm not sure what that is other other than, I don't want to introduce a MacGuffin of, of some sort of impending ticking clock, although a ticking clock is always a good thing. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Seth, can you, do, do you have any thoughts along those lines? Um. Well, for the, the colonials, daughter kind of represents that they can keep staying here. Right. They can procreate. They, they can procreate. Um, to the Nakai, she represents that the colonials stay there and because uh, they're, they're kind of the slaves, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So they don't want daughter because, you know, the clock, the clock, I guess, is ticking and the colonials would, you know, might have to leave and she cements the fact that they're going to be stuck with the colonists. Um, and then the Eba, uh, they're, they're the ones that are going to kind of, uh, use her as the war banner. Right. And they, and that could be, you know, for the Eba, she could represent finally eliminating all of these other tribes, including the colonials and, and bringing, bringing solidarity and peace into the world at last. Is, is there a racial difference between the Nakai and the Eba, like by looking at them? Uh, no, not, not, I mean, obviously they could, they can distinguish between each other through, it's, through kinship, they, they can tell which moiety who belongs to and where each person is from. It's so it's more, more dress, identity. dress and, and language and so on, more so than physical characteristics. So yeah, you language could, especially. You could do a, a sleeper cell sort of thing yeah. where, uh, someone in, in, in the Nakai ends up being with the, the Eba. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Sure, absolutely. And uh, that way, uh, you well, one that leads to you know gorgeous betrayals. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And and a good twist when you find out that you know this this you know Noi is being recruited, you know not not openly but kind of recruited into joining uh, the Eba. 
mm-hmm. uh, through people that she's interacting with, and her you know her recruiter just looks like one of the other people in the tribe. Uh, so that could that could be fun. Mm-hmm. But, well, and and you get to you get to have that wonderful tension as Noi has to make a decision. You know, and and you know if you know what if what if the initial inciting incident is not that daughter escapes, but that Noi and Belkio conspire to get her out of there because she is the savior of the colonials, and and Noi and Belkio take her, and then as you say, Seth, there's a sleeper in there, and the Iba go, oh, she's created, oh, she's our war banner, and so they attack the Nakai and take the girl, and now we have to get the girl. Everybody wants to get the girl, and 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 then then Iba use her as the the standard. Ho ho, we will fight now, and and the big epic conflict. You know, get the battle of five armies. Only there's three. And and the, the the final stakes of this foothold in this new new continent uh, uh, is decided. I I keep coming back to the the fact that daughter could she could be the hinge that all of this turns around. Yeah, as, 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 as you both said, you know, if she works, the colonials can stay. Given you know her, what she is, then. You know, she's obviously very, very important to the people she ends up with. So is her origin. Because if you have a society that worships architecture, you have a society that worships architects. Ooh, good point. Yeah. And if she, if that comes out, if you have these people realize that this kid has been built, then they're going to look really kindly on the people who've built her. And that puts Balkio's people in a potentially very bad situation. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and just and, and given the, the, the cultural uh, foundations for these colonists, because, as you say, because she's created, she is Morlo's monument. Yeah. Yes. I will. I'll interject to say one of my ideas was that he Morlo's kind of doing like a, a gambit here where either he has daughter, the empire prevails, everything's cool. Or if the Iba have her and she respects him and then the Iba could come to see Morlo as a figure of power, and suddenly he has control over this massive army. Mm. Yeah, Al, where were you going with the the reverence of the architects? Was there a, was there more? Because I liked that 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 really resonated. Just, just that that suddenly you have a huge huge wide open diplomatic channel between two of your three groups, which potentially puts your third group very much out in the cold, and that yeah. in turn. Maybe brings the, the the need or perceived need for Killer Man into a far far sharper focus, because you could drill down on this to the point where you know this kid is vitally important. She's the glue that holds these two groups together, and if these two groups are held together, then you know they're in a lot of trouble. So they send right. out to go to Killer, and, and well, this is everything. This is him in you know being forced to choose between accepting the. You know, edicts that he finds repulsive or being allowed back into his society. Yeah. And it's not even like it's a fair fight. Now, the, the, the one issue that kind of leaps out to me about that is that as endings go, that's far closer to a really good mid-run Star Trek The Next Generation than it is an epic fantasy novel. <laughs> because fundamentally, what you've got is three groups of people going, we have an interesting ethical conundrum. We do. Let's talk about this and possibly quote Shakespeare. Be the most <laughs> British French person we know. Yes. And I'm not, I, I'm honestly not sure how to make that more fun. But the bottom line is if you go for something like that, you, it seems like that kind of field is where you, you 
bring all the concepts that you've been exploring down to a fine needle point and down to the brutal honesty that you have to have when you're discussing violence, which is sooner or later someone's going to get killed or fucked up. Absolutely. I'm, I'm liking all of this. Guys, I'm, I'm watching the clock tick down. Uh, uh, and, and clearly there's, there's more to explore here. Mark, you've really, you've really laid out a fine buffet here at the workshop table, uh, uh, for consideration, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of gently, gracefully, uh, uh, jeté us over to this, this final wrap up. Cause I think, I think maybe some of these final thoughts might at least, there's a lot of threads dangling and a lot of choices. I think that you, uh, as the writer of this story are going to have to make as you explore this. But I think we've defined the field a little more and maybe with some final wrap up thoughts and, and considerations, we can tie off some of those threads and give you, give you some, some solid foundations to build on. So uh, Seth, I, I'd like to start with you. If you could give, give some final thoughts and considerations uh, uh, to Mark, fill, fill his pockets with literary gold uh, so he can go off and write this story. Well, um, I keep coming back to the idea of Marlowe having the com- competitor and the, the competition being, you know, he who creates, uh, this female is going to be able to, you know, control the Eba. And so I, I really like the idea of, uh, daughter being this, you know, the, being the, the war banner, the tool that everyone's competing for. But, um, how does, how does she feel about the whole, thing or does she even realize it and do we ever need to see her point of view mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know she she can be an active character but it doesn't mean we have to crawl into her head and then ultimately i would like at the end that you know whatever it is it you know be daughter's decision yeah uh, so it's <laughs> this whole book she's being pushed back and forth and pulled and Told, told she's some prophesized thing or a science freak, and at the end, whatever happens is completely at her hand. That's awesome because yeah, because then because then that that the fact that we haven't been in her head all day long creates this sort of objective fate in play here, and all of the characters' actions influence her to make this decision. You can trace it back. That's fabulous. I love that. So that's it's kind of where I would would head with the end. And once again, I really dig the idea of the the rival scientists um, <laughs> because yeah. you've got the you've got the colonies. You've got the issue of well, yeah, sure, we're under the emperor, or whatever. We're totally off by ourselves, and they've got their own power plays going on. So with the scientific community, it is he who can solve our problem of, you know, basic fertility is is going to be the, the master here. And um, that's what it comes down to for him. Excellent. Good stuff. Al, what about you? Final thoughts? I think that I have two. I think you have two points that you can focus on here. And they're both things that will lead you to all the solutions you need. The first is absolutely what Seth's already talked about. You need to sharpen and expand that central conflict, the one that revolves around daughter. And the second is this is a book that's going to live and die based on its female characters. You have a fascinating opportunity here to deal with two women in wildly different situations with huge ideological differences who have far more control than they think. And that is a fascinating and tragically underused plot. And I think work on them, focus on them, focus in particular on the consequences of daughter's existence. And you've got something which is going to be extraordinarily good. Agreed. Cool. Thank you. Awesome. Um, Thank you. 
for myself, uh, Mark, uh, I will I will also agree. Uh, Mor- Morlo's competitor caught my imagination as well. Uh, a thought that occurred to me uh, was a colonial race that, albeit has very stringent rules about genetic purity, is being confronted with certain death. Now, if they're very Roman and very, hmm, we will face death with honor and slowly die out because we can't breed, that's one thing. If, on the other hand, there is a faction in the colonist culture that says, fuck this, we're going to breed, we're going to live and have taken to breeding with Nakai. And then I started thinking, well, what if that's where the Eba came from? Uh, uh, or something along those lines, or something, some some notion of a rival group within the colonists, because the Iba have that same reverence of built things that the colonists have, and that was an echo that that, that tweaked for me when you were first mentioning it that that the Iba revere made things, correct? Yes. Okay. So and and that very much shadows or or echoes rather the the colonists culture of the the reverence of the architecture and the architects. Uh so clearly there might be some sort of uh shared heritage in the Eba and maybe maybe initially there was a some sort of of splinter group within the colonists that 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 took to breeding with the Nakai and there was a great revolt and they were purged uh, uh, and in that purging these 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 half breeds that grew up together went off and became their own tribe I don't know uh, uh, just something something to create some connective tissue between these tribes. Uh, uh, I like the idea of the colonists not only confronting their own death, uh, but also the idea that the mother empire uh, uh, is actually maybe they're coming to destroy them. Maybe the fear of this plague is so great and certainly warrants uh, uh, drastic action that they are going to leverage their technology and their saying, Sorry, you guys are a hazard. You're all going to die. And maybe that's the ticking clock. Maybe, you know, a satellite is moving into position or a bomb is, is being sent or whatever that is literally going to irradiate this entire plateau just in the interests of imperial preservation. And everybody's got a stake in that. And the, the story is an evolution of how each unique culture deals with that. And you could explore different because you're talking about survival. That's your thematic essence, cultural and physical. And I think I, I love that. I think that's got mojo. So thing, things to explore. It's like, oh, geez. Now, look, Mark, you know the rules here. <laughs> you take all of this smorgasbord of literary gold that has been strewn at your feet. You you somehow tie it together and, and make this thing work. You write this and you put it out in the world, whether it's just a PDF on your website or, or a small pub, trad pub, indie pub. I don't care. Uh, but once it's out in the world and people are reading it, you come back and we will knight you, sir. We will make you a knight of the round table podcast. You down with that? Yeah, I hope that means I can do another one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's the rule. You have to publish the first one before you can come back on again. So, yes, right. definitely. And we'd love okay, to have cool. you back. Awesome. We'll do that. Seth Skorkowski, sir, once again, we, we you are the reason why we bring veteran authors into the story workshop vibe. Uh, excellent insights, wonderful perspectives. Uh, you really informed this discussion, and we're very grateful. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. 
And and Alistair, my friend, uh, uh, we we could do this for hours, couldn't we? We could. <laughs> <laughs> and and at WorldCon, by God, we will. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, my friend. This has been a blast. I so deeply appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Absolutely. And friends, as long as we're doling out the gratitude, it goes out to you as well. Thank you for tuning in. You closed the loop for us. I hope you got as much literary gold as we did from this discussion. And if you're feeling the love, you want to pay it forward, you know, blog about us, tweet. You know, if you see a Facebook post on the Roundtable Podcast uh, uh, Facebook page, share that bad boy. Feel free to spread the word. Let folks know about the awesomeness that is the Roundtable. Uh, and, and now... I'm, I'm going to light up the ceremonial cigarette because I'm spent. <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, and, and the wonderful thing about the roundtable is as spent and exhausted as we all are through this, this brainstorming froth, next week it starts all over again. Another fabulous guest host bringing awesomeness to our ears and pouring wisdom into our brains. Another courageous guest writer bringing their baby to to be gilded in literary gold. More round table brainstorming awesomeness to be had. But that's that's seven days. That's a long time to wait for more roundtable awesomeness. Al, help us out, man. What can our listeners do for the next seven days that will make that time just fly by? Okay, so you know how at the end of the 20-minute episode, I talked about how you could put together, plan, and draft something in seven days? Yes, we all filled out our Outlook contacts for that. We have a calendar date on that, yes. Kick-ass. Here's what you do with this seven days. Nothing for the first two. Do whatever you want. Then on day three, you're going to be tired and a bit annoyed. Go back to that draft. Read through it. Make notes on what you want to change. Do not be surprised or disheartened if what you want to change is everything. Spend day three and day four redrafting it. Sit on it for day five. Check it again for day six. Revise what you want to do. If at that point, and I'm speaking from experience here because I'm on for the fourth draft of a short story right now. <laughs> if at that point you feel like it's ready to go, send it. And for God's sake, go have a cookie or something after you do. <laughs> so you've done it. Or a nice cup of tea. <laughs> Precisely. If not, lather, rinse, repeat until you're ready to go. See, Al, you have guided everyone through the actual creation of a story. At the end of this two weeks, if they follow that advice, Al, there's going to be more awesomeness in the world. That's the plan. Brilliant. I love it. <laughs> I, I, can only, I can't follow that up with anything other than what I always tell you, friends, uh, and that is that you find what you're looking for. So look for the blue label goodness on that top shelf. Look for that package that you might have overlooked at the back of the tree. Look for fabulosity. And if you look for it, dear friends, I promise you, you will find it. We'll be back with more awesomeness in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frothy, and be awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. 
If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.